You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Um, as Adam was saying earlier, we are uh, enjoying an application Sunday today, and so this is an opportunity for us to to look back and reflect upon what we've been learning over the last eight weeks, really, I think since our last application Sunday, so almost two full months, and um, we've been in a series uh, on the minor prophets, and so we've been working through each minor prophet one per week, and so we've been there for the last 12 weeks, Um, and so we're going to wrap that discussion up today. And so really the heart behind why we have Application Sunday in a a given, uh, normally on a given week, we would have the the extended time of fellowship where we would eat together, but it is that opportunity for us to pause and to just reflect on what we've been learning to make sure that we are faithfully both hearing the word and doing the word. And so instead of just plugging along sermon after sermon after sermon, it's kind of a, a natural way for us to just stop, pause, make sure that we've really heard what God's been teaching us make sure that we have an intentional plan uh, to do something with it before we move into uh, new content that God wants to give to us. And so uh, thankful that we could do that again today. Really thankful just to be with you guys today. I feel like I had a week that um, certainly fits in with what 2020 has been. And so um, it's just always encouraging to be able to get to the weekend and be able to be with our church family um, and to engage in, in collective worship together. So excited to be able to do that today. Um, we are kind of looking, starting with Obadiah today, and so I'm just going to kind of recap uh, some of these sermons that we've done over the past several weeks, and then as we've been doing, I guess, the last couple of application Sundays, I'm going to give you four things to remember and four things to do in response to what we've heard um, from Obadiah all the way through um, Malachi, and so we'll kind of wrap everything up today, and then we'll talk about what's next now that we've finished up the Minor Prophets. So looking back at Obadiah, this was a really short uh, book um, really short minor prophet, and it deals specifically with uh, God addressing the actions of the Edomites, right? And so these are the people that uh, come from uh, ancestry with God's people, right? So you have uh, Jacob and Esau, and God chose, chose to, to work through uh, Jacob and his descendants. Esau becomes the father of a great nation as well, though. He fathers the Edomites uh, from Edom, and so uh, they're their own people group, and their interaction with Israel had been less than stellar, right? They had uh, been abusive and violent towards the people of Israel, but they had also been very off hands when Israel was in need. And so God was judging them because they had not done a great job of taking care of their brother. Um, they had not done a good job of treating their brother the way that they should have treated him. And so uh, God addresses that in the book of Obadiah. We saw. Uh, as a summary sentence for that week, because God is fiercely opposed to those who are prideful and those who oppress his people, he expects us to demonstrate humility in our interaction with others by aiding rather than attacking or benefiting from those in need, All right? And so we, we made it ac- applicable to what we experience today, um, that we want to evaluate ourselves in light of the pride that God deals with in the Edomites. Remember their, their city, their fortress was, was built high up and we talked about how the location of their city was very similar to the, the spiritual condition of their heart, right? They had built themselves up. They had become very prideful, very self-sufficient in how they went about life. And so God's going to bring them down. God's going to humble them both uh, from a physical standpoint and a spiritual standpoint, right? And so we, we saw that God is certainly uh, opposed to pride, um, and he will address the oppression of his people. I want to read to you from Obadiah chapter 1. Verse 10 and 11. So I'm going to try to hit 
you know, a couple of verses from each book that we've looked at just as a way of uh, reminding you of where we've been. The Minor Prophets certainly are a section of Scripture that we don't go to uh, frequently, and so it's going to be very easy to forget what we've learned. And so I would encourage you and challenge you to try to even think through some ways to make some of the stuff that we've learned memorable to you uh, moving forward down the road. In, Ob- in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so we talked about them being pridefully violent towards Israel. We also talked about them being pridefully silent towards Israel, right? That, that they had done some intentional things to be harmful, and then they had also done some things where they intentionally withheld their action, withheld their involvement, where they could have been a help. They could have helped Israel and they chose not to. And so we talked about, well, what does that look like for us today, right? Like, what does it look like for us to be violent towards those around us? And it doesn't necessarily mean from a physical standpoint, right? We can be very violent and very, very harsh with those around us in the words that we use, in the ways that we treat others, uh, in the ways that we um, gossip and slander potentially, um, that if we're not careful, we get sucked into that type of interaction at work. Um, we can uh, engage in conversation where others are being torn down rather than uplifted. Um, and we can affect how somebody views somebody else by the words that we choose uh, to say. Um, and we can also be silent when that type of thing is happening. And maybe we don't involve ourselves in it, but we don't do anything to correct it. Right? We see damage being done to somebody. Uh, we see... Um, harm being done to somebody, and we do nothing to, to stand up for that individual. We do nothing to help that individual. And this was a, a section where we got real applicable with our students, right? Those that are in school, those that see this type of stuff happening uh, in their hallways, right? Whether it's elementary, middle school, or high school, like our kids see other kids being mistreated. Our kids see other kids being treated violently, maybe not with fists, right, but with words. And we certainly don't want to participate in that. Right? I challenged our students. We don't want to participate in that type of activity, but we also want to be a difference maker with that activity, right? Where we're willing to stand up for those that are being harmed. We're willing to stand up and address uh, the, the behavior that would be harmful to somebody else, right? And, and, and we do that because God addresses it here and says that to the Edomites, I'm not okay with how you were violent towards Israel. I'm not okay with you being silent when Israel needed you. You should have stepped in and helped. We saw that God takes pride seriously. He's going to humble the proud, especially when our pride affects how we treat other people. And God cares how his people are treated and will repay the oppressors with his justice. And, and that's certainly been a running theme that we've seen through the minor prophets, that we can take comfort and encouragement when we feel like we're being mistreated and we see injustice happening around us, that, that God is going to deal with that down the road. He will deal with that one day. Like that's not going to be overlooked forever. That's not going to be tolerated forever. Um, that God will step in and address it. And so um, Obadiah is a good reminder to us that we need to have checks and balances in place to examine our own pride, and we need to be very mindful of how we treat and interact with other people around us, that we're not contributing to the violence towards others, to the harm towards others, but we're also being a, a, um, a fixer or, or part of the solution to helping defend others around us as well. All right, we then looked at the book of Micah, the book of Micah, and it talks about Specifically in Micah uh, chapter 6, what, what God desires for man to be. What does God want to see man 
living out on a regular basis. And we said because God cannot be bribed to avoid judgment, we must respond in the ways that he requires by humbling ourselves before him while seeking to do right towards others with a heart of kindness and mercy. Right? Israel had become known for their, uh, their injustice, particularly through the, the element of bribery, that their judges, their kings, their leaders could be bought which is not the type of environment that we want to live in, right? Where, where good is defined by who has the most money and who can influence with their power, right? And so uh, we see that God's not that type of God, that he can't be bribed like the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel were being bribed. And so if he can't be bought off, then his looming judgment, we have to respond to that with the ways that he's given us. Um, and he talks very specifically in Micah about how to humble ourselves before him, while seeking to do right towards others with a heart of kindness and mercy. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is a, a passage that with our 4th through 8th grade at Trinity, we've been memorizing, we've memorized together uh, for the month of August. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We, we've seen these themes throughout all the, the prophets, right? This responsibility to do justice. It's what we were just talking about in the book of Obadiah, that there's a, a responsibility on us as God's people to do right and to correct wrongs that we see, right? So we're to be leading the charge in what it looks like to treat other people correctly, to treat people uh, as being image bearers of God. Right? Whether they're believers or not believers, they bear the image of God. It's how God created them. And so we've been talking a lot about that at, at Trinity with our middle school kids, that, that there's a responsibility that we have to treat others the way that the Bible defines their value and their worth, that they are created in the image of God, which means they're unique, they're special, they're gifted and talented in, in all the ways that God desires for them to be. And the ways that we treat and interact with those people is defined by what God says about people, that they're created in the image of God. And so we do right to people. And when others are treating people differently and incorrectly and and devaluing them potentially, whether it's because of their skin color or their background or, or whatever that may be, that we're willing to take a stand against that. Right? That we're willing to say, this isn't okay, this isn't right. Like It's not okay for you to belittle this person because they're different than you. Right? That we do, we do justice. We, we do the right thing. We correct wrongs when we see them. We love kindness, meaning that what defines our interaction with others is um, ultimately what we see God doing to us. Right? That we, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, how, how the Old Testament particularly even describes God as a God who is slow to anger. Right? One who is gracious and merciful the exact opposite of what the critics want us to believe about God in the Old Testament, right? That he's an angry, wrathful, vengeful, hot-tempered God that just lashes out anytime somebody does something wrong, right? What the Old Testament <laughs> goes to great lengths to show us is that he's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And it's how we want to be known for treating other people too. It's how we want to be known for treating other people as well. That we want to be known as individuals who who are all about justice, all about the right thing being done. But we're able to package that in the package of mercy and grace and loving kindness and patience in the ways that we interact with those around us. We do justice, we love kindness, and we walk humbly 
right? We keep ourselves in perspective in light of God's glory. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 is kind of the other passage that really stands out to me from this book that we were able to look at. Because it highlights this fact that, that God is so outside our, our, our comprehension, right? Like there's so many things that God has revealed about himself, but the depth and level of who he is is so, so hard to comprehend for us because there is no one like him, right? Verse 18 of chapter 7, who was a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you swore to your fathers from the days of old. What's Micah highlighting here? He's talking about who God is and how he's revealed himself, but he's also leaning into the idea that God has promised to always be this way, right? That, um, that he's, he's made promises to Jacob and Abraham, and, and he's carrying out those promises in the ways that he continues to treat his people, a, a, a treatment where we enjoy the forgiveness of our sins. We enjoy his anger not hanging, hanging over us. Right? We enjoy his compassion. We enjoy this restored relationship where when we come to Christ in salvation, like our sins are forgiven and they are removed and, and they're not something that hangs over us. And, and that's the foundation for how we can treat other people that way too. Right? Jesus talks about that in the parable of the unforgiving servant, that how can we experience this great forgiveness for this great debt that we owed and not also exhibit that same type of forgiveness to others? When we're wronged, right, to not be able to extend the same forgiveness that we enjoy from God. As image bearers of God, we are to be these type of people. We are to be slow in anger. We are to be merciful and gracious and forgiving. We are to seek to make God known through our interactions with others, right? This was the week that I kind of challenged you. Think about the things that, that you most appreciate about God, right? The, the, the first thoughts that come to your mind about who God is, those are the things that, that you should be known for as well, right? The things that you've most intimately experienced about God, those are the things that people should be experiencing from you, right? As we, as we bear his image, as we seek to make him known to those around us. The book of Nahum was next. Another, another section about uh, God's enemies and those that were opposed to God. So a lot of the minor prophets are written to Israel, written to Judah, uh, but some of them written to or written about uh, other nations. Obadiah, about the Edomites. Nahum, about the Ninevites, right? And we saw that God's just character demands that he will act against evil. But his goodness shines forth and that he delays his action long enough so that evil humans can repent and run to him for refuge from the wrath that they deserve. Right? God's just character, he is a God of justice, it demands that he's going to act against evil. Right? He's not going to tolerate evil forever. But because he's also a God of goodness and mercy and grace, he delays his response. He delays his action long enough so that evil humans can repent and run to him from refuge, for refuge from the wrath that they deserve. Because this is where we talked about how in the book of Jonah, God also threatened judgment on the Ninevites. Right? He, he, he threatened judgment against the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and they repented. Right? They turned from their wickedness. They came running to God. Even with Jonah's bad presentation of the gospel, where he just basically showed up and said, judgment's coming, 
and, and they were left to kind of figure out the rest, right? And they have the conversation that maybe if we, maybe if we relent, maybe if we repent, maybe God will relent from the disaster that he's promised us. And we see that God is exactly who they needed him to be, right? They find that he is a God who is willing to relent from his anger. But 100 years later, right, God has to bring judgment on them because they're, 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 they've reverted back to their evil. But it's where we talked about how there, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people in, from Nineveh living in heaven right now with Christ because God was slow to anger and he was willing to be gracious and merciful in response to their repentance. So yes, God does deal with the evil, but he waited long enough for a group of people to get things right with him before he brought the judgment, before he brought the disaster upon them, right? So let's look at Nahum chapter three, verse 19. It's the very last book of, or the last verse of the book, right? It ends with a question. It's kind of a weird ending to uh, a book of the Bible. It ends with a question, right? It says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. God's making the point here that uh, what they are getting is exactly what they deserve, right? They are being punished and dealt with harshly because everybody around them has been dealt with harshly by them. Right? They, are, they are basically reaping what they have sown. And so we see God's response. It's, it's very right. It's very appropriate. This isn't God losing his temper on the Ninevites. He is responding in ways that, that we want him to respond to. Right? Even the great critic who would tell us that, that God is untrustworthy because he's a hot-tempered God that, that responds to evil and responds to people that disobey him with, with anger and wrath, he responds to the things that frustrate us most about this world. Right? He, he responds to the, the hurt and the sin that breaks things around us. We want that type of God. We want that type of God who will respond to those type of things. But we also want the type of God who's, who's willing to forgive, who's willing to be merciful and gracious, and it's exactly how he reveals himself in his word. Back in the beginning of the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, He's avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies, right? That's, that's the God of the, the critic, if you just stop right there. That's the God who's angry at sin, wrathful towards sin, responsive towards sin. But verse three, he's slow to be that type of God, right? He's slow to anger. He's great in power. He will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Right? We see God's great power. He certainly doesn't lack the power to respond to sin. Who can stand before his indignation? Verse 6. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And there's such hope and encouragement contained in this passage. With an overflowing flood, he'll make complete end of the adversaries, will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. And you see this this, this, this back and forth picture of who God is. He's a God who responds to sin. He's a God who can't be plotted against, right? His enemies can't make plans that, that, that are against God's plans, right? He'll, he'll stop those. He'll cut those off. 
but he's also a God who people can come and take refuge in. Right? We, we've talked about this picture that we see from Rahab, right? That, that Rahab feared the God of Israel, knew that Jericho was going to fall, doesn't run away from God, she runs to God. Right? She runs and, and takes refuge in the God of Israel because she knows, she knows there's, no, there's no value in running from him. He'll catch you. He'll catch up with you. <laughs> His justice will come. And so uh, we see this, this wonderful picture of who God is uh, as he's dealing with the people of Nineveh. We can rejoice today because God is good. We can repent because God is angry. There's several sections in Nahum where it talks about him being against Nineveh, against Nineveh. We see that contrasted in the book of Romans when it, when it talks about God being for us, who can be against us, right? But the flip is true. If God is against us, it doesn't matter who is for us, right? Like our relationship with God is, is the one that defines the rest of our life, right? We need him for us, not against us, and he's willing to be for us, right? If we'll turn to him and repent, we can run to him and find refuge if we're willing to humble ourselves and repent, we can run to him to find that refuge. Book of Habakkuk was next, and we talked about really a conversation that happens between the prophet and God. There's, there's not a, a strong dealing with uh, a people group like we've seen in some of the other minor prophets. God is talking about what he will do with Israel, but the, the primary purpose of the passage is to give us insight into this conversation between God and Habakkuk. It says, oftentimes we are tempted to think that God is indifferent or inconsistent in how he deals with evil in this world, but he reassures us over and over in his word to keep trusting that his justice will be carried out rightly and timely. This is a a book that really does a great job of, of reconciling God's goodness with all of the rampant evil that we see in the world. It's a question that gets asked a lot of times by, by both critics and believers, right? If, if God is all-powerful and, and God is all-good, how can he let evil take place at all? How, how can God allow these things to be happening? And so while the book addresses that, the, the way that it reconciles it is it helps us to see that, man, God's, God's work and God's plans are always bigger than we can comprehend and imagine. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5 God responds to Habakkuk when, God's, when Habakkuk's basically like, hey, how, how are you allowing Israel to be so wicked and evil? Like, why are you not dealing with our sin? He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This isn't God waking up because Habakkuk has alerted to him to something that he's not realized. Right? This isn't, oh, Habakkuk, you are so right. Like, what am I doing? Like, I've, I've, I've fallen asleep on the job. I failed to do what I should be doing, right? He's like, Habakkuk, I appreciate you coming to me with your concerns, but let me just make you aware that I've been aware of this for far longer than you've been aware of it. And I've been planning some things behind the scenes to take care of this. Now, the big reveal is that God's going to use Babylon to address Israel, right? And that that really kind of confuses Habakkuk because he's like, Babylon's worse than we are, right? Like, how can you use Babylon to address our sin? They're worse than we are. What we see from this book is that we can understand that God's always at work. He's always aware of evil. He's patient in his response to it, but he's intentional in how he plans to address it as well, right? He's allowed Israel to ripen in their sin, to give the opportunity for repentance. We can trust that when God's work is confusing, uh, that he's still in control. Look, you read through the Bible, and, and, and God's really shown a pattern of doing things that don't always make sense at first, 
right? I mean, that, that's just, that's just, that's really how he's chosen to reveal himself is that there's an element of having to trust him because things are going to look confusing, which, which means we just need to embrace that in our life right now. We just have to embrace the fact that there are going to be times where it looks like God's not at work. It's going to look like uh, he's not carrying out his promises, but the pattern has always been that, that he shows himself in the end, right? Like he always comes through. He always reveals himself. He always makes his ways known. So when, so when life throws us uh, things that we weren't prepared for, right? That's not the time that we run away from God. That's the, that's the time that we really lean into him. It's the time that we really run to him. Man, I had unexpected things happen this week that, that um, you know, confuse me, uh, make me certainly uncertain as to how God's going to carry me through it, right? But based on what I'm learning in Scripture, right, when his, when, his, when his work is confusing, that's when I lean into him most, right? That's not when I, when I step back and question and say, what are you doing, right? It's when I lean in and say, what are you doing, right? Because you're doing something. You're doing something, Right? And that, that's, that's, that's the same question, but with a different attitude, right? I can step back and say, what are you doing? What am I implying? I don't know if you're doing anything, right? Or I can lean in and say, what are you doing? Because I know you're doing something, right? And, and I'm looking with inquisite eyes. Like, I want to see what I can't see right now. I want to see what you're about to do. Because it sounds like if you were to tell me right now, it'd blow my mind, right? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to comprehend it right now but I can't wait till I can comprehend it. I can't wait for you to reveal it to me when I am capable of comprehending it, right? So if we're trusting him that way, we can worship him in that too, right? Look at the end of Habakkuk chapter three, verse 17 and 19 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. All right, that's where Habakkuk ends this whole thing. All right, he comes to God questioning him, is really confused by the answer that he gets. But at the end of the discussion, he's willing to put his faith in the unseen. Right? He's, willing to, he's willing to put his trust in what he knows to be true about God from his past faithfulness, anticipating his continued and future faithfulness. Book of Zephaniah, where will you shelter? God turns his attention back to Israel and, and the judgment that's coming. God tells us where all of creation is headed. While it doesn't necessarily make the path easier, knowing God's plan does give us all we need to prepare our shelter and endure the bad while anticipating the good and all that he's doing. We talked about the, the TV show Alone, and these guys that go out into the wilderness, and they've got this, this opportunity to just live on their own for as long as they can, and whoever lasts the longest wins a half a million dollars. And the first thing that they have to do is to build shelter, right? How am I going to protect myself from the elements? How am I going to protect myself from the harsh winter? How am I going to protect myself from the cold, the heat, the wind, the rain, how am I going to take care of myself, right? This book talks about what we need to do to prepare ourselves, to shelter ourselves from what God is going to do in the future, right? In Zephaniah chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 3, it says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Is he an angry God at sin? Absolutely. Does he communicate his wrath? Absolutely. But a hot-tempered God would not tell you in advance about his anger. He just wouldn't. Like, think about the people in your life, whether that's uh, a mom or a dad or a, a boss or a coach or think about somebody in your life who has been characterized as someone who lashes out in anger and has a hot temper and blows up, right? They do all those things without warning, right? That's what makes them so uh, horrible in our mind, right? Because you don't anticipate this. You didn't see this coming. Like what seemed to be nothing all of a sudden became a huge deal to this individual, and they're lashing out in anger and, and, and hatred and wrath and the reason that that rubs us the wrong way is it's because I didn't, I didn't have any warning for this, right? God has gone to great lengths to warn us about what's coming. So we can't be characterized as our worst image of a parent or our worst image of a coach or our worst image of a boss because he gives us advance notice, right? He gives us advance notice about what makes him angry and how he will respond to it. And he gives us the out clause, right? If you want to avoid this, you come running to me for refuge, That's what he tells us again here in the book of Zephaniah. Here's how you shelter yourself from my anger. Back at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, he reminds us too that he's not a God who is disconnected from what's happening, right? It says that, verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Right, these are a group of people who have basically disconnected God from every circumstance in their life, right? They don't give him credit for the good. They don't see him doing anything good in their life. The, the good in their life is ultimately a, a result of their effort, right? And they certainly don't see any concern about God doing anything towards their evil. They've seen his tolerance. They've seen his patience, and they've misunderstood it as though God is okay with it, right? What we want to see is a God who uh, remains very active in the good and the bad, And then we want to find hope in in not what's passing away, but what's instilled to come. Because as we see things deteriorating around us, and and what we've seen in the Minor Prophets is that evil exists, evil is active, evil's at work, and it won't be dealt with until God comes back. It It won't be dealt with until Jesus comes. But the encouragement to us, and a verse that I've really been clinging to, and I hope I don't forget as we move away from the Minor Prophets, is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Right? It's, the, it's the image and picture that I gave you of me holding my son when he's, when he's angry at night, tired at night, wanting something at night. And when he crashes at the end of the day and is showing those emotions, when I'm able to scoop him up in my arms and he lays his head on my chest and he becomes quiet as I'm able to hold him with my love, Right, there's been plenty of times over the past six weeks of this school year 
<laughs> where I've needed him to quiet me with his love. As I'm navigating through teacher issues, parent issues, student issues, right? Which is in a normal year, and then you throw COVID on top of it, right? There's been plenty of times where I've had to run to him and say, quiet me with your love. Because I have all these wants and needs and frustrations and, and confusion and, and all this going on in my life in my head. And I just need to be scooped up like Apollos is in my arms at night sometimes. And, and I just need to lay my head on his chest and, and just know that he's in control, know that he's at work, know that even when it's confusing, it's not confusing to him. That's the, that's the hope that he gives to his people. Yes, I'm going to be working. Yes, I'm going to be bringing judgment. But don't put your hope in the things that are passing away. Put your hope in the things that are still to come. We saw in the book of Haggai uh, our responsibility to prioritize correctly, right? Because our spiritual health is far more important than our physical health, God calls us to prioritize him over everything else in life, even when our circumstances would tempt us to do otherwise. This is on the back end now of the Old Testament where all the other minor prophets had been dealing with stuff before the exile to Babylon. Now the people of Israel have come home and have come back from Babylon. They're getting back into their normal ways of life. They're rebuilding their homes, but what they haven't done is re-engaged with the spiritual aspects of their life, right? They are, um, they're stuck in this rut where they're, they're focused on the physical, but not the spiritual. Look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. All right, they had not rebuilt the temple. And I told you, the reason they hadn't is that they had adjusted to life without it. For 70 years, they had been in Babylon where they didn't have a temple. They didn't have their ways of worship. They couldn't go to Sunday school. They couldn't go to small group. They couldn't go to Sunday morning worship. They couldn't go to discipleship groups. They couldn't do any of these things. It was cut off from them. And they, they, they were able to personally worship. They, they, they could pray in their house. They could, they could worship in their house. They couldn't do it collectively. They were stuck in a foreign nation that worshiped false gods, and they were trying to stay uh, true to Yahweh as best they could, but they didn't have their normal practices in life. But now they've been released to go back, right? Their, their, their time of captivity, their time of quarantine had ended, right? And so I, I challenged you with consider your ways, consider how you have begun to re-engage with everyday life, and make sure the spiritual matches it at least. It really needs to exceed it, Right? We can't limit ourselves with spiritual involvement and be far more ahead with the physical involvement, right? We can't be back to work, back to doing all these other things and not re-engage from the spiritual side of things. But it's easy, it's easy to have learned how to live without the Sunday gathering in person. It's easy to, to not come back when you've learned to live without some of these things. And I say learn to live loosely because it's not really defined as the way of living for a believer, right? But we've, we've learned some bad habits. And so what I'm calling you to, because God's word is calling you to it, is to make sure that you're reengaging appropriately in spiritual life in a way that at least matches, if not exceeds, how you've reengaged with every other aspect of your life, right? And many of us have, have like it or not, had to reengage with a lot of other areas of our life, 
and we certainly want to make sure that we're fully re-engaging from the spiritual side of things too. Um, why was rebuilding the temple important? Because it essentially communicated that they still wanted God in their lives and they still wanted to carry out their covenant responsibilices, right? That they wanted to get back into the sacrifice system. They wanted to get back into their feasts and festivals, that, that God still had value and importance in their life. So, so that's what it communicates as well in, in this day and age. By re-engaging in the spiritual life, what we are saying is, I want to carry out my covenant responsibilities to God too, particularly my responsibilities to other believers, right? Because there, we've talked about this, there, there's so many one another passages in the New Testament, things that I'm supposed to do to you, you're supposed to do to me, that are best done when we gather physically, Right? the love, the service, the encouragement that we're able to show to each other. It's a necessary part of a Christian's life. So the question I asked you this week, are you back to where you were pre-COVID spiritually? And if not, why? I told you I would never press you to do anything that's unhealthy for you, but I will press you to do spiritually what you're doing physically in other areas of your life to make sure that it at least matches if doesn't exceed what you're willing to do in other areas of your life. Haggai, what are we prioritizing? Zechariah, they've started to rebuild the temple, but they are overvaluing their traditions and rituals as though that's enough for God. And God says he's far more concerned about their heart and their action outside of their gathering times than he is with them carrying out certain rituals. It says God has very clearly given us his expectations for obedience. Although we sin and fall short, God has made provisions so that we can be forgiven and restored each time we fail due to his unfailing love for us. We don't want to just go through rituals and think God is honored. So yes, it's a big step for all of us to start gathering again and coming back to small groups and Sunday mornings and D groups and the things that we do here at Sovereign Hope. But if our attitudes and hearts aren't right in it, it doesn't meet God's expectations for us. He cares about our actions. Look at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. They come asking whether they should start fasting again and should we do this, should we do that? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is what I want you to do, guys. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Right? These are the things that God wants them to do. It's the same thing that we were even saying from like Micah, right? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk in humility. But they refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. We talked about guarding ourselves so that we don't allow our hearts to harden like a diamond to where God's word doesn't impact us. And and the book of Hebrews says that the way we, we resist the hardening of sin is that we have people exhorting us regularly. Right, people that encourage us and help us see blind spots and, and help draw out conviction in our life where we need it. And then the, the big passage for me from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 14, one that I certainly want to remember as we leave our study of the Minor Prophets. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. God says, as, in, as intentional as I am to judge and to rebuke and correct, I am just as intentional 
to bring good to you. I told you, as we, as we think about ourselves as image bearers of God, we're not always great at doing both, right? I'm far better at correcting, rebuking, and addressing uh, my kids when they're doing something wrong. It takes effort and intentionality on my part to affirm and show appreciation and celebrate the good. God says, this is who I am. I'm intentional with both. I'm very intentional when I rebuke and correct, but I'm also very intentional with the good that I show, right? Something that we take hope and comfort in, but also something that we take challenged, we can feel challenged by in the sense of, I want to be that type of person too. I want to be that type of person who images God well in the intentionality that I show when I rebuke and correct, but also in the intentionality that I show to be good and affirming towards others as well. And then lastly, we looked at the book of Malachi last week. We're called to honor God in all areas of our life, including the ways we pursue intimacy with each other, the ways we use the resources we are blessed with, and the ways we think about him during seasons of doubt. This is where God uh, is really speaking into their everyday decisions that they're making, right? He, he, he addresses their decision-making about marriage, right? He talks about how they've become very loose in their standards for who to marry, and they're marrying people outside of the, the covenant. They're marrying people outside of the, the spiritual commitment to Yahweh, right? We said this is far less about skin color and culture and, and, and whatnot, and far more about the spiritual element, right? Because there were plenty of people that were coming into Israel, being grafted into Israel in the Old Testament where marriage was happening with those people. What God was not okay with was his people marrying people who worshiped other gods because he knew inevitably it would squelch their own desire for him, right? So he challenges them and says, look, you gotta be really intentional with who you choose to love, with who you choose to pursue intimacy with. I told you last week, this is a huge responsibility on us as parents, right? Because we've been tasked to help guide our kids in their friendships and then ultimately into their relationships that they're gonna pursue one day, right? That we create high standards. I told you last week, we don't want our kids uh, choosing to, to love question marks when it comes to intimacy, right? Like, your kid comes home and says, I think they're a Christian dad, right? Like, I think their, their parents go to church. Well, what church do they go to? I don't know. I forget, right? Like, I need my kids to know when they come home talking about somebody, they need to know where that family goes to church, right? Like, that, that's going to be one of the first questions, right? Next question is, are, you know, when did they get saved? I don't know. We haven't had that question. We haven't had that conversation yet. Well, I don't know what conversations you are having about your relationship, but that one needs to be on the top of the list, right? Because we're not going to do this in my household where my kids are, are pursuing question marks. They can be friends with question marks. They can serve question marks. They can, they can uh, uh, have, have gospel relationships with question marks, right? They ain't getting married to question marks. This is not going to happen, right? And I want my kids to know that from day one. Mom and dad aren't going to be okay with question marks coming home as an option for me. Then he goes in even further and says, Man, you honor God by staying married, right? Because what was happening in Israel is they were divorcing Israelites to marry Canaanites, right? They were divorcing and breaking the covenant marriage to pursue something that was unhealthy and unholy for them, people that were worshiping other gods, right? And so God's challenging us and he says, look, you honor me by the people that you choose to marry and how you choose to stay married as well, 
right? This, because what is the reflection of is the value that you place upon me in your life, that you care about what I, you care about what I say about your relationships. Then he goes on to talk about their resources, right? He wants them to, to give him their best. They were bringing these, these deformed and sickly sacrifices because it didn't cost them anything, right? So they would bring these animals to sacrifice, but it was their castaways, it was their castoffs, their, 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 their unvaluable animals. Then they were robbing God by not giving of their tithes, right? And so challenged us to make sure that we're giving him our best and that we're also willing to give sacrificially where it puts us in position to trust him, right? Our daily decisions about how we love and how we spend our money, things that people sometimes don't always filter through God's standards, he says, I absolutely need those things filtered through my word. I want you making decisions based on what my standards would say for you. And then we want to uh, avoid evil skepticism because the people's response to all this is, we don't know if we want to listen to you, God. We don't know if we want to follow you, God, because we don't know if we can trust you because you let evil happen around us. All right, so look what it says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're saying, God, we don't even know if it's worth following you because you're so unresponsive to evil, right? What we've been seeing in the minor prophets is that God absolutely responds to evil. But because he's a God who's slow to anger, merciful and gracious, it's not always on our timetable. We want to avoid evil skepticism, though, thinking, that, thinking the worst of God instead of thinking the best of him. Right? What we've seen is a pattern of faithfulness where we can, again, lean in and say, what are you doing, God? Versus, what are you doing, God? Same question, different heart attitude in asking it. Right? All right, so that's, that kind of wraps up all the sermons we've had recently on the Minor Prophets. Let me give you these quick points to remember and to do. Number one, what should I remember? Evil is going to be actively present until Jesus returns, not because God is indifferent or powerless, but because he's patient and good. And we just need to go ahead and and accept that, right? He's an all-powerful God. He's an all-good God, but he does allow evil to happen, and he is going to continue to allow evil to happen. There is going to be bad things that happen around us, and it won't stop until Jesus comes back. But lest we listen to the critic and think that God is indifferent or God is powerless to do anything, it's a reminder to us that he is patient and he is good. Right? The Israelites would have questioned, why in the world is God not judging Nineveh? And there are Ninevites in heaven today thinking, God, thank you for not judging us too early. Thank you for giving us the chance to repent. Thank you for giving us the chance to run to you for refuge. Right? So God allows the evil to be active and present, not because he's indifferent to it, not because he doesn't care about it, because he's patient and good. Number two, while God delays his own response to evil and injustice, he expects us to be very active against it in the meantime. We don't always see God's hand of justice right now, but what he has made very crystal clear to us in these minor prophets is that we have a responsibility to be active against injustice today. We are his extension right now. He expects us to 
do justice, to love kindness, when we see wrongs around us, we are expected to work to fix those. Not to be like the Edomites and be contributors to the problem. Not be like the Edomites and be silent to the problem, right? We are to help fix the problem. We do so with a tempered mindset, though, that we can't get it right until Jesus comes back. So he expects us to be very active against it in the meantime, but we're, we're waiting for him in the meantime to come get it all right. But we will do what we can to do right to those around us. Number three, our spiritual responsibilities should never take a backseat to our earthly responsibilities. And these last three minor prophets have made that abundantly clear, that what we do spiritually needs to far exceed what we're doing physically. We can't ever let our earthly responsibilities force our spiritual responsibilities to the back seat. They've got to take priority in our life. And then number four, our daily decisions and commitments regarding relationships and money are inevitably tied to the value we place upon God in our life. Our daily decisions and commitments regarding relationships and money are inevitably tied to the value we place upon God in our life. If God has supreme reign in our life, it'll affect even our decisions about how to love, who to love, and how to spend our money. And he wants that type of place in our life where our best is being given, our wants and desires are being submitted to him and to what he commands us to do. All right, so then tagging off the four things that I want you to remember, the four things that I think we need to be willing to do coming out of this study. Number one, when life throws curveballs at you, lean into what you know about God and his overall purpose to show good to his remnant. All right, so I'm, I'm normally known for football analogies, but I'll give you a baseball analogy today, okay? Um, when a batter is up at the plate, pitcher throws a curveball, right? A good curveball looks like it's going to hit you as the batter. I mean, it's coming right at you. And the goal of the pitcher in his pitch is to have that thing break at the last minute into the strike zone. So he gets the strike called by the umpire. But what he wants you to think is that it's going to hit you. And so what does the batter do if he really believes that it's going to get, he's going to get hit? He bails, right? And, you, and those of you that watch baseball have seen this before, and, and it's humorous because you'll see the batter up at the plate, right, and he's ready to hit. That ball's coming in, and he thinks it's going to hit him, and so he steps back, and then, boom, it falls right into the strike zone. Umpire calls strike, right? Well, what has he done? He's bailed out saying, whoa, like, what is going on here? Like, I don't want to get hit by that right? But the good hitter leans into it and says, I know this isn't going to hit me. I know this is going to turn at the last minute. And he sits on it and then he smacks it, right? He's not fearful of the curveball. So for us as believers, as as life is throwing curveballs at us that look like they're going to hit us, look like they're going to bring us harm, right? What we want to do from this study is be willing to lean in again to the promises that we're seeing here. To lean in and say, God, what is it that you're doing? I'm not going to bail. I'm not going to bail out and say, whoa, what is happening here? I'm about to get hit with something, right? Instead, we're leaning in and saying, how am I going to hit this, right? How's God going to do something good with what looks like is very evil towards me? Right? We want to lean into those curveballs, stay put, don't bail out, and trust that God has promised to show good 
to his remnant, that, that, that group of people who keep trusting him even though everybody around him is doing the wrong thing, right? Number two, look for ways to correct the mistreatment of others around you while anticipating God's perfect justice in the future. This is gonna look different for all of us because when we leave here on Sundays, we all go in different directions, but we all go to places where people are mistreated on some level in some form or fashion. And we want to be the type of people who seek to correct that mistreatment. Again, realizing that it's only until God comes back when everything gets righted, right? We're, we're, we're insufficient, incapable of fixing everything that's wrong in this world. But we will work towards that in anticipation of Jesus coming. Number three, be ready to re-engage more and more in local church life as you take steps to re-engage in other aspects of your life. Again, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you're uncomfortable with. I'm just going to keep asking you to do what you're obviously comfortable with in other areas of your life, right? Let's rebuild the temple as we are rebuilding our houses. And then number four, make sure your life's decisions, including who you choose to love and how you spend your money, are aligned with God's will. These are four real practical things for you to start doing right now, right? Because all of us are going to see curveballs this week, things that we weren't expecting this week. And we can all react one of two ways. We can either bail out and say, whoa, I don't want to get hit by that. Or we can lean in and say, what am I going to do with that? Because God's doing something in the midst of that. And we can hang on to these promises that we've seen in the minor prophets. We're going to see people this week that are, that are mistreated on some level. And we, we can work to fix those wrongs if we're intentional with our actions. Number three, Consider your ways this week. Make sure that you're re-engaging appropriately here within this local church. If you're a member, for those that are visiting, we'd love to have you engage here as well. And then evaluate your life's decisions all the way down to relationships and, and the use of your money and make sure that's aligned with God's will. All right, so sadly, that brings us to the end of our Minor Prophet Study, which has been so enriching for me. I hope it's been enriching for you. I hope it's challenged you in new ways. Again, I told you, one of the things that I love so much about the Minor Prophets is, is seeing truths that I know about God, but seeing them packaged in just a little bit of a different way because it's verses, passages that I'm, I'm not as familiar with. And so they say it a little bit differently than some of the passages I'm more familiar with. But when they say it in an unfamiliar way, it causes me to think about it differently, it causes me to ponder it differently. And so it's been super healthy for me um, for us to have that. So coming up next, um, we're going to go to... Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and kind of have a shorter verse-by-verse series that we're going to do probably until about January um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm really excited about being able to do this because I think it ties in very well with what we've been learning in the Minor Prophets because Jesus' sermon here is a lot of practical application of some of the things that we've seen in the Minor Prophets from a New Testament perspective. Um, and so we're going to go Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm also really excited uh, for how we're going to structure this because I'm going to take some time off in the midst of this series. And so for the month of November, a good portion of November, I'm going to step aside and not teach. And our other elders are going to take some time to teach uh, through this series. And so this is the first time that we've ever taught the same stuff, right? So our, our elders have done a great job in the past of filling in, but they've always done kind of independent stuff from what I've been teaching you guys. This is the first time that we're going to have that overlap. And so I'm going to take about four weeks off and just be here and be a part of this church and, and, and come and worship with my family and take a little bit of a teaching break. I think you guys need to hear from them more frequently, more frequently than we've allowed in the past. And so uh, we want that to be something that 
you see more of moving into the future. And so we're going to have that happen immediately before we, what I'm anticipating is getting into the book of Ephesians in the next, in the, in the new year. So um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, verse by verse until January. And then when we hit January, um, we'll be jumping to the book of Ephesians and kind of settling into that study for probably the next year, year and a half or so. So let's pray. God, we are so thankful to know you in the ways that you have chosen to reveal yourself. We are thankful that you are a God who is angry towards sin because we ourselves get angry towards sin. And we want it to be dealt with. And yet what we find in this earth is that we are incapable of dealing with it properly. Authorities and leaders that are even put in place to regulate right and wrong can't efficiently do it the ways that our heart desires for it to be done. And so we are thankful that you have promised to come back one day and to set all wrongs right, to bring justice to the evil, to bring restoration to those who have chosen to humbly follow you. And God, we're thankful that we can be grouped in that group. We're thankful that we can be grouped in that remnant that that longs for you to come, that is sheltered in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We worship you this morning by partaking of the Lord's Supper because we we are professing outwardly what is the cry of our heart inwardly, that we are putting all of our hope, all of our trust, not in the things of this world, but in the work of the Messiah. And Lord, we do this in obedience to you until you come. And we do pray for you to come quickly. We pray for you to come so that we can be quieted by your love for all eternity. But Lord, help us to realize that by not coming today, you're not doing so because you're indifferent or complacent. You're doing it because you are a God who is slow to anger. You're a God who is merciful and gracious. You are a God who is waiting for more to repent. And so, God, we will rejoice one day with those who get saved. Today, tomorrow, the next day, for all the days that you continue to tarry. We thank you for being that type of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.